Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Progeny Podcast. We welcome my dear brother Sayyid Amman Akshawani. And the Sayyid needs no introduction. One of the most influential and recognizable voices in the Shia community in the West. And it's a honor to have the Sayyid join us once again during the holy month of Ramadan. Today, we will be discussing a few important issues regarding media and specifically Islamic media. COVID more than ever before has taught us the importance of media. We have relied on media during this period for our news, for us to stay connected and even for online education, both for children and the elders respectfully. Many of us who do not have access to our Husseiniyas, mosques and even the madrasa for our children have turned towards apps such as Zoom and YouTube to connect with our faith. Most of us know Sayyid Ammar through the different media outlets and today we delve into the importance of media in the Muslim world and discuss his experiences with the media. What are his experiences both positive and negative that he has witnessed and what is the future for Shia media? Sayyid Ammar Nakhshawani, Assalamu Alaikum Warahmatullah. Wa Alaikum Assalam Warahmatullah. Sayyid, good to have you on the podcast again. Thank you. Thank um, you for I'm making a time. I'm less nervous this time. Oh, is it? You yes. were nervous the first time? You know, <laughs> Never. I get very nervous. Never, so Sayyid. Last time I was a bit nervous, but this time I'm a little less nervous. Good to have you. Thank you for Thank making you. time for the progeny. It's always an honor to have you on this podcast. Thank you. Um, the topic, and we spoke about this on the phone as well, was was, was media. Um, and everyone who, who knows Sayyid Ammar, knows him through the media unless you're in the close circle of of having the honor of of being Sayyid Ammar's friend um, but everyone knows you through through the media from from people in Pakistan India to places such as Australia New Zealand all the way to to America you know in the west if you speak english and you're a muslim you know Sayyid Ammar al-Shawani and i want to start talking about about the media first in the 70s up to the 90s because you know especially for the english speakers because that was different maybe for us Iraqis uh, we'll remember I remember my dad having the cassettes yes. of Sheikh Ahmed al-Wa'ali he yes. still has them actually the other day I saw you know a bunch of cassettes and I was like why would you still use them he's like I, I don't even have a tape player but I still have them he looks after them how has the media um, developed since then and we'll start maybe by looking at that early period yeah we've still got the cassettes at home as oh, well you? you know I think uh Sheikh Al-Wali, may Allah bless his soul's cassettes were what you were brought up with on the way to the mosque and on the way back home. Uh, there was always a bag in, in, in the bottom corner of the car somewhere and that bag just had cassettes of Wa'ili everywhere. And it really highlighted to you just how instrumental these cassettes were for a community that felt so far away from Najaf and Karbala and the wonderful environment that they were used to in the months of Muharram and Safar. Wa'ili acted as an intermediary for them. Um, it's as if his voice made them feel like there was still hope and you know, many of these cassettes were from uh, his majalis in Kuwait. Mm. And so there was this need for a demographic in London or a demographic in the West 
to still have some sort of relationship with Imam al-Hussein irrespective of where that particular speaker was speaking. So you could be in London, but if there's a great speaker in Muharram speaking in Kuwait, you didn't mind. Mm. And you found therefore that people were looking forward to these cassettes and I actually was still in the generation of the cassettes. Mm. So it was either small uh, cassettes or you were slowly moving to the VHS video Mm -hmm. uh, cassette and I do remember mm, sitting with a couple of my friends in the early 2000s where we would get, you know, we would have video cassettes of other renowned Arabic speakers and I think the same was going uh, as uh, it was true for the Urdu um, crowd as well, mm-hmm. where they would wait for cassettes uh, to reach them from Lahore or from Karachi, for example, of the most renowned speakers. I think people would wait for Torabi's lectures mm. um, to be sent over. And for years, people would repeat Torabi's uh, lectures even if he had given them, let's say, in the mid-70s in Karachi, in Muharram. Mm. But they'd always repeat if there was a series on Sajda, for example, or or, or Sujood. It would be renowned, you know, on Dua. It would still be played over and over again. So I feel that in that period, we actually utilized what we had uh, very well, you know. Um, How many of us when we're on our way to the mosques today with our families or with our children, do we have 60 lectures in the car Mm. ready on our phone or ready to be played? What's happened today is that, listen, is there a way we can buy a car so that the kids remain quiet on the way to the mosque? Mm. And maybe that's where our parents are to be given a lot of credit because that Hosseini, you know, um, vibe in the was instilled within us in the cars mm. on the way to uh, the mosque. So my memory, really, and 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 what happens is that when I first begin uh, speaking, you'll find that there's small cassettes of mine, which uh, our good friend Al Haj Hassanan Baraka used to be in charge of the cassettes mm. um, for Haraka's lectures. Uh, Hassanin is great in many things. You know, if you ever want to see a proper man, it's Hassanin. But one area is his, you know, his English grammar at that time probably wasn't <laughs> the best. And he would, God bless him, you know, have the recording. And the recording would be on Day of Judgment. But certainly if you look at the spelling, it just it just looked like something else. But <laughs> we were in that generation. So in the, in the early 2000s, we're still in the cassette generation. Yep. And I've got to say that someone like myself, I used to love um, going to a couple of stores in central London Mm. where you could get hold of uh, these cassettes of renowned non-Shia speakers, Sha'rawi, Kishk, Mm. Egyptian speakers who were very famous in the 70s and 80s in in Cairo's uh, lecturing circuit. And there were these stores in central London where you could literally buy hundreds of their lectures. Uh, so it was in that period that we're still collecting cassettes. I remember someone had given me a gift. You know how when you go to Hajj or Umrah, you'll have um, 
in 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 Medina or Mecca, you'll you'll get these thirty mm. or like 114 surahs of the Quran. They were given yeah. to you in some like album or yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember someone gave me Sheikh Al Muhajir's Thirty Nights, and it was in cassette format. So we were doing actually very well, I think. The fact that we were a community that had to leave our homes, become refugees in Syria, become refugees in, you know, seek refuge in London or in America or Canada, but we still had access to the cassettes. I think that generation has to be applauded because they really worked hard to make sure that if there was a lecturer that you couldn't listen to and he's far away from you and there's no YouTube, there's no internet, then we'll send you the cassettes. Everything changed, I think, with, with the internet because then, then you, you ended up having lectures online. Now this was a bit easier because some people would download these lectures in MP3 format and they could now listen to them while they're going to work on these MP3 players. Um, who, do you remember your lectures ever, ever going online? Do you remember when they first were online? I'm talking about audio only here before the videos came about. Yeah, I remember I was uh, fortunate enough to be invited to... Dubai, uh, and I lectured there, Shahar Ramadan, two thousand and three. Dubai actually became one of the most important websites uh, in the Shiite media world, because until today, whenever you go to any mosque on the nights of power, which we're going to be seeing very shortly in a couple of weeks, you'll always see dubaijama'ah.com's PowerPoint translations of the ed'iyah, of the supplications. Mm-hmm. Dubaijama'at was a front runner in the importance of using all media, audio, video, internet in the sense of uh, streaming, and I've seen many who benefited because of DubaiJama'ah.com, especially I would say from 03 till 06. They also realized that, look, why are the du'as that are being recited only in Arabic? Why don't we have a translation for them? And that's part of the importance of media is when you use the tools so that more people are able to benefit from the knowledge or the expertise or the heritage that you carry. And so DubaiJama'ah.com, I remember I did 15 nights of Shahar Ramadan there. And uh, they were the first to have these lectures uh, available. My lectures that I can remember anyway. Don't get me wrong. I could be lecturing in Cape Town, South Africa mm. the, the following year. For 10 nights, a wonderful community, but there were no lectures available, audio or video. So we were still, especially in the English-speaking world, we're still not sure how well English is going to do, how important it's going to be, and how we were going to utilize media. There was no strategy. Most of the strategy had been with Arabic, for example. They're still churning out material of the names that I mentioned. Urdu, there were still videos being sent from Mumbai or from Karachi. But you weren't seeing anything of strategy in English. People have begun to notice the importance of um, 
of having material available online when you know when i for example would be uh, going abroad to lecture people would ask you know you got any of the dvds available for example or and people don't mind waiting at that time can you imagine mm. you know today people will be angry if the lectures uploaded 10 minutes late mm. whereas at that time there wasn't no real strategy and nor was there unity in what was being done. If you were lecturing in Cape Town, they've never met the guys who you're lecturing to in Sydney who don't even know that there's a group called Dubai Khaja. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and so you were having these good programs. I remember here in London, there were programs being held in English. But if you were in different parts of the world, there was no, not necessarily one website. I, I, I do remember Hosseinia.com. Mm. I don't know if you remember that website, Hosseinia.com. Yeah. And that website, I remember vividly as the first website where there was a collection of English yeah. Yeah. Uh, speakers and where they were lecturing. Mm -hmm. But again, it was all audio. Yeah, and it was only a few uh, then. But with, with the internet, then you had the emergence of YouTube. For me, YouTube changed everything. We're talking, I think, 2005 YouTube launched. But by the time you know we got on it, maybe 2006, seven. And then when you started getting the video recordings, I'm guessing that's when people were thinking, okay, the centers obviously were thinking, we'll upload this on YouTube. Your first YouTube experience? Yeah, yeah. The, the centers were thinking of uploading and the speakers were also now adamant that, look, we've got to get this on YouTube, you know. Uh, and I would say that 2006 in Dar es Salaam uh, was the movement towards YouTube around the world of Shi'i mm. uh, lectures. Uh, our non-Shi'a brethren had already started way before with the likes of um, Ahmed Didat, mm. with the likes of uh, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, with the likes of Zakir Naik, who had already a, a great amount of material online but now was an emergence of a, of a group of speakers in my generation where all of a sudden you could go to YouTube and you could type their name. Night one, Shahar Ramadan. Night three, Shahar Ramadan. Night ten, Shahar Ramadan. There were lectures in the holy month of Ramadan which were now available in YouTube. I don't know how available they were in video format pre-06. Mm. You probably know YouTube and the dates better than me, but I do vividly remember <clears throat> um, a younger, more good-looking version of me in 2006 um and it was it was surreal you know you're on youtube you know and i've got these lectures available i, I still remember some of the titles of that year um and you you realize now that this was going to be a very important form of tabligh that's something huge mm -hmm. uh now people from around the world you got to remember Hajj Mustafa, that sometimes when we're living in London, we have access to mosques regularly. Mm -hmm. There are certain people whose parents may have taken a position at a hospital in the middle of nowhere, in the sticks. Those people rely on you for Shahar Ramadan and Shahar Muharram. I've had people who passionately will write in and say, where's your lectures? We're here at university. We're all sitting down waiting. Why have they not been uploaded? Where's the lectures? Where's the lectures? People relied on YouTube. They couldn't wait for Shahar Ramadan and Shahar Muharram. 
It was like a box office thing. The views were coming in in the hundreds of thousands. And yeah, you know, to the credit of the mosques, a lot of them began to pick up on it. You know, there were always people, you always find a couple of people in the mosques who are good technicians, they work well and so mm. on. And I think that, you know, you, you'd liaise with them that listen, this is how we upload it. Do we upload it? On which channel do we upload it? How do we upload it? When do we upload it? When's the best time? What's the... So the discussions really begun about YouTube and the importance of having lectures on there about 06, I would say. I read a stat which, which I'd like to share, which was that today, or I should say this was taken at the beginning of this year, so January 2021, YouTube has 2.3 billion registered users, those people that have accounts. 79% of internet users have their own YouTube account, and that's a big number. Um, so so you've now turned into um, someone where is reciting in, for example, New York or Washington or Sydney or Dar es Salaam. But at the same time, you know that there are people in different parts of the world watching that lecture. Does that change the way you approach the lecture? Because I'm guessing when there's no cameras, you're more speaking to that specific community under the mambar sitting in that mosque. So for example, you'll address their issues. But when YouTube came about, or when video recording came out, did, did you change the way you pick your topic? Yes, I, I believe that. Because you're, you're getting, sorry, because you're getting emails from someone from, I don't sure, know, sure, from, from sure. another country saying, you know, I'm, I'm watching this lecture and it's affected me. So now does the topic change? If you look at some of the topics, they showed that if my crowd may not have been very aware of what was happening worldwide, I certainly was. Mm. Um, I have lectures, I reply to Dr. Israr Ahmed, I reply to Dr. Zakir Naik, um, I reply to Haraifi, I reply to Kalbani. You know, there are lectures where there's replies to people which some people in the crowd were looking at me baffled, thinking, <laughs> who are you talking about, you know? And uh, especially the reply to Dr. Zakir Naik when he said, Yazid, uh, may Allah be pleased with him, mm. um, which caused uproar yeah. in Mumbai. And in the past, the Mumbai crowd would have to rely on somebody in Mumbai mm. to deliver a reply to this Yazid statement. I'm sitting in Sydney, Australia, mm. majority Lebanese community. It's night 10 of Muharram, 2008. Mm. And I'm like, Dr. Zakir Naik is one of the most famous speakers in the world, but unfortunately recently, he said so-and-so. When I said Dr. Zakir Naik, you can imagine in the Lebanese crowd, they're looking at me Who's that? and they're thinking, who's that? What happened was, once YouTube emerges, you then begin to realize that you have the ability and the platform not only to discuss the opinions of others, but to allow your people who are under your pulpit to be able to understand the different issues and challenges that we're facing in the Muslim world. If I lectured on abortion or euthanasia in 09, 
there may be nobody in that crowd who's aborted. Mm. But when I've had 26 emails saying to me, what's the blood money for abortion? Mm. I'm going to use that platform. And the platform moved from Muharram and Shah Ramadan to also Fatimiyah. Yeah. There was the emergence of Fatimiyah in 07. I was fortunate enough to lecture at Bayview, mm. which was the center used by the community previous to Bathurst, uh, which is now being utilized, of course. And Fatimiyah became another platform. These platforms allowed us all to become one community. We all discuss globalization, don't we? And yeah. the world's so small, but the onus is on the speaker to prepare topics where you're utilizing the media, you're understanding what sound bites are needed, which mm. words are meant to be in the title, mm. which titles are titles which very much relate to what's happening. My reply to the Pope in 2006 when he spoke about Islam and possibly the spread being quite evil or by the sword, suddenly somebody sitting in Sweden or somebody sitting in parts of Kenya was like, Pope, suddenly typing, oh, Pope, yep. He said, oh, okay. Yeah. So what began to happen was we began to utilize that space and people would look forward to reply to. But people also weren't just looking forward to these. We now were able to utilize the space to bring about discussions concerning biographies of famous personalities. You know, my biographies of the Masoumin in, in 2011. Yeah. Hither to that point, you don't have content online of the biography of the 14 infallibles. And now in the holy month of Ramadan, you've got this chance because of YouTube. And at this point, you still don't really have Islamic television channels. Yeah. So YouTube is your Islamic television channel. At the same time, as, as YouTube started, I remember the, the DVDs. Yes. And those being distributed around. Um, your lectures, a lot of them were on DVDs, which was, again, another way for people to, to get a set. They'd wait for you to come back from, from I don't know, uh, Sydney or parts of America, and they'd wait for the DVD set of the 10 nights or the 30 nights of Ramadan, and they would sit down and watch it. That was quite popular, I remember, as well. At the same time that people were watching stuff on YouTube, maybe even more popular at a certain yeah, point. Yeah, the MP3 CDs and the DVDs. Yeah. With the uh, with Ummah, the Universal Muslim Association of America, we produced you know DVD sets on the Quran, for example. And the MP3s, I have one of my good friends who lives in the UK, who I know wouldn't want me to mention his name, so I'm not going to mention his name. Oh, okay, I'd love to mention his name, and maybe there's a reason why he doesn't want his name mentioned, and that's because mm -hmm. he literally would get all my series of lectures on MP3 CDs and go to prisons and give them to Shia inmates in the prisons. We forget about the Shia inmates. We forget about our brethren who are behind bars. Where do they go for Majalis in Muharram or in the holy month of Ramadan? Where's their commemoration in a gathering of Fatimiyah? He would go to prisons. 
And he'd give it not just to the Shia. He'd say, listen, anyone wants to listen to this can listen. You agree to agree or you agree to disagree, no problem. And he also would give it to some of his non-Shia, non-Muslim friends to say that, listen, here's a great lecture which discusses the opinion in Islam and Christianity on Christ, the differences, compare and contrast. So MP3 CDs were useful in that way. In another way, I remember a friend of mine who used to say, listen, I need your MP3s because when I'm driving, it's a long trip. I need to go through a number of lectures. And sometimes those types of CDs or DVDs help people when they were on long journeys because I think you the first of the eyes that came out, was it called the iPod? What was the first one that came out? I iPod probably, yeah. The, the small, small, there was there was a small one. I, I've forgotten it now. Yeah, but, you know, yeah. you, you had that generation that moved into these Apple products. And mm. I remember the first of them were people downloading lectures on these really small gadgets. That's the one, iPod Shuffle. iPod Shuffle. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I remember those days. Uh, the MP3s and DVDs served very well. Um, you know, the quality is very important. I know that, um, you know, whenever you get invited, you, you, if not ask, you investigate what the center has with regards to their sound system, their AVs, the cameras they're using, what's their, have they got a YouTube channels? quite important because again, as we mentioned, when you're lecturing, you know, you've got this platform where you know everyone, all, all the Shia around the world are listening to you. So the platform is important that they have some good, at least good AV system, at least some good cameras. Have you ever turned up to a message and you thought, oh no, the first night and you're like, the system's... How many stories do you want me to narrate? <laughs> How long do we have? Fix the sound. Fix the sound. Fix the sound. How many stories can I narrate? I used to give benefit of the doubt at the beginning. I used to say we're an evolving community and that the sound systems will eventually all be fixed. I think many people know that I'm a stickler for sound and I, I think I deserve to be because if you're going to be giving 30 nights of lectures in a row, this area here has to be very well protected. I'm not going to say I'm the best at always protecting this area here. But one thing that really helps is when you have a mic and you have these speakers and it's so smooth. Mm. See, let me try and explain it to the audience listening. When we're sitting on the mambar or when we're on the pulpit, there are all these speakers all around the hall. Those speakers could either be facing me or facing the crowd. Mm -hmm. I want them to face me so I can hear myself. Mm. If they're not facing me, the crowd can hear me perfectly. I can't hear myself. For us, what was happening was... The mic, which should be doing 80% of the work for any speaker, was doing 20%. What begins to happen when a mic is doing 20% of the work for you is you begin to stretch your voice. Shout, maybe. You begin to shout where the crowd's thinking, why is he shouting? You can't hear yourself. I can't hear myself. You're thinking you're too low. I think I'm t it's too low. The person who's heading the media team is looking at me and saying, Wallah, I've put it the loudest. I'm like, I can't hear myself. The crowd are saying, how much louder is this going to go? I can't even hear. Now, 
problem could have been that I've got a hearing issue. Then I checked and I certainly don't have one. Alhamdulillah. And then I realized that the problem was that the sound systems. You see, what used to happen was they used to give us these clip mics. Mm, don't, don't, it doesn't make any sense. When you give me a clip mic here, how am I going to know how loud I am when number one is over here? Like this. <laughs> yeah, and and there'll be times I literally have taken this off and put it and held it in a lecture mm. because I need to hear myself. I know some people are going to be looking at this thinking this sounds so petty, but for a person who's got thirty lectures, the last thing you need on your mind is why is this sound system so bad? The the most important thing for for a lot of speakers as well as reciters I know I'll mention the likes of Basim Al Karbalai yes is really that the sounds really important to him so he'll ask for I don't know four maybe six the, the guys behind the behind the cameras would know four or six speakers facing him only yeah yeah you know put as many speakers as you want facing the crowd but I want four just facing me I remember I mentioned this because I shared a mumbar with Basim. So before Basim, there was an Arabic lecture. And before that, there was an English lecture. So I sh- I shared the same mumbar. I got on the mumbar and I said, I just said, Bismillah. And I was like, wow. Because I I looked yes. under the mumbar, there's four speakers facing me. Yes. There's two on the side facing me. It was unbelievable because I was just like, Bismillah. And then I could hear myself yes. so clearly. And then so I realized how important the sound system is for a speaker or for, for a reciter. And that's why, like you said. For you the know, listener. How many lectures did you watch or you listen to where you're like, I just wish the recording was a bit better? What the sound comes and goes? Sound comes and goes. What's that noise in the background? Why is his voice not smooth? You know what's happening? Why is he shouting? Why is he shouting? You know, I had I had certain parts of my career where the sound systems where we were invited to, and look, I'll be very frank. Indo-Pak and Khaja communities, when it comes to organization, are are the best. No doubt. When it comes to sound, unfortunately, are not the best. Iraqi. Organization. Organization, (laughs) inshallah, (laughs) are not the best. But when it comes to sound, my God. I could lecture in any Iraqi center anywhere. And I know the sound is out of this world. Mm. Can I suggest why I think this is the case? In the Indo-Pak and the Khaja community, the Maulanas who recited all these years would tend to have very strong oratory to the extent they'd be sh- they could shout for an hour, hour and a half and just not lose their voice. And in Masa'ib, at the end of the lecture on the Na'i, they don't change their voice. There is no need to play with your voice. Mm. That meant that there was no pressure on the sound team. Because Maulana's voice is so loud that for an hour, hour and a half in Urdu, he can absolutely go on. Mm. No issues. In the Arabic-speaking world, the Maulana cares so much about how his voice is because of things like na'i. That meant that there was more pressure on the Hsaniyat in the Iraqi community, for example, mm. on the Arab community generally. There was always more pressure because of the Maulana, not so much the Radud or the Nawha Khan, but because of the Maulana. Now, don't get me wrong. I've, 
I've shared audiences with the people you've mentioned. I've shared audiences with the likes of also in, in the Urdu world, you know, Nadim Sarwar, Mir Hassan Mir, people like this who, you know, who just are, have the most amazing voices. They are also very picky about their about the sound. They want their production media-wise not to be a production that's laughed at or someone has a certain amount of frustration with. And so, yeah, so so what was happening was that I would lecture, for example, in the Iraqi community, I'd just be like, you know what, I can relax on this mic. Mm. And then when I'd go, for example, to the Khoja or the Dubai community, I think I was responsible for the changing of sound systems in many centers because I was like, this is just awful. And here, you, the good thing is you have communities who are receptive to it. They're ready to change it. But they can't understand why, because the Urdu Maulana who's spoken before you has not said one thing about the sound system. Because the Urdu Maulana doesn't really care that much, because he knows his voice can carry. And he can go on screaming for hours upon end with his passion for Ahlul Bayt, sallallahu alayhi So, where it begins to change with those mics, in some cases... Were that some communities began to bring experts. And I really do believe that there is a need for experts to look at a sound system before you establish your mosque. Mm. The worst thing is to bring your non-Muslim friend to a mosque and they're listening to a program and they're just like, my Lord, the sound system's awful. This is doing my head in. My eardrums are going. Mm. When's this ending? The best thing is when you have a mic that's so smooth that in the supplications that are recited before you even speak, you just feel a calmness and a serenity in that center. It does begin to change, I must admit. I think 2011, my good friend, Al-Hajj um, Mazahir Ismail in, in Toronto, Maz uh, begins to introduce what's known as the Bieber mic. And Justin Bieber has this mic, which literally puts around the ear, and it comes all the way to the lip. And this is heaven for us, because now finally there's a mic which comes over our beard, right to the lip. You can hear yourself so well. But the progress, this is 2011 I'm talking. Mm -hmm. There were some communities until last year, there was no conception of this. I went to Peterborough for Muharram last year. Yeah. And people were telling me, wow, the stage is amazing. The sound is amazing. We had to get people in. Yeah, experts. There are still some mosques in the Muslim community that have CCTV cameras as the main camera for the lecture. I can't even see the thief stealing in a normal CCTV camera. How am I going to see the Maulana? But that's all part of our growth. Yeah. And we all work together to grow, to evolve. They have set up a lot for us, but we can help give tips on certain areas. I said at the start, you know, with, the, with regards to, to COVID, and then you had the lockdowns, and you, you know, it taught us the importance of media. And I, and I said, you know, every Husseiniya, YouTube page, every center's YouTube page turned into a TV channel, we can say, mm. because now people were turning to their YouTube, to their Zooms, to, to, to get to the lectures that they wanted. And the mosques, the ones that were behind, thought, oh, we're using a CCTV camera, or we don't have enough subscribers, or we haven't even got a YouTube channel. So that's why it's important, you know, we're mentioning this stuff because we realized how important it is today and for some centers it was a bit too late for others alhamdulillah they, they you know they were there already even the ones that were not there they're now improving but every husseiniya has to sort of now think about the importance of having a good av system 
good cameras, uh, bringing in experts. I think to it doesn't have to you know don't bring your friend just because he knows a you know a yes. few things about about the sound system. And Alhamdulillah, as you mentioned, all the all the centers that I've been to in the last year or two, or I've seen sorry videos on YouTube of have improved. Alhamdulillah. Um, with with your lectures, all of them are available online except one. <laughs> two thousand and ten Muharram is not available. Why is that? I've always wanted to ask you. Yes. Um, unfortunately, the the people who were meant to finally get it online just never did. Oh, is that? Yeah. Um, you know, they they were available for a period. And even if you listen to the recording, it's just... Because uh, the topics were quite important. Yeah, though. topics were great that year, you know. And um, as I said... It, you listen to the recording, you feel like it's someone sitting in the crowd taking their phone out and recording. Maybe and, that would have uh, done a better job as well than the phone. Yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, it was, there was a, f- a frustrating period, I must admit, for a couple of Muharrams and a couple of Shah Ramadans where you would just look at the recording and you'd just be like, guys, you know what? How can we be proud of this recording? You guys have done majalis, you've cooked for the people, you've set up so well. And at the end, the recordings are just so bad. But we're progressing. And I think there was great progress being made slowly and great development. Sayyid, you know, I mentioned that some, some people might think, you know, this is, oh, why is this important? But I, I always brings back the hadith of Ihyu amrana rahimallah man ahya amrana. You know, this is part of Ihya al-amr, isn't it? You know, because now you're not only spreading the teachings of the Ahlul Bayt in your own centers, you're now spreading it to the whole world. The, the, you know, it's there. YouTube is there for you to do so. So that's why important. Let me give you the most simple example I can think of. And that is, there used to be these DVDs that you could get hold of where uh, this person would sell them to you. Two DVDs for five or three oh, DVDs for seven. Okay, so you, you'd, you'd always have those people. Now, when you go home to watch that DVD... And you suddenly see that, you know... It's filmed in the cinema. It's filmed in the cinema, for example. And believe you me, we've had moments where literally, because the lecture had to be saved, someone literally was filming it from the crowd. (laughs) That's how, unfortunately, some of the sound rooms are so archaic. There's a difference from when you watch that film in the cinema to watching a film recorded by somebody random in the cinema. Mm. I think that explains everything. That same period, 2009-10, we have the emergence of Ahl Bay TV, uh, the world's first exclusively English platform uh, on Sky. Of course, before that, we did have some Arabic uh, Shia channels. I remember the late, may Allah bless his soul, Sayyidina Muhammad Ali Shahristani, uh, great man. I'm sure you remember him in You're London. Well. May God bless us. Um, he had Al-Qa'im which was a satellite channel in Arabic that would broadcast, I think, two hours a day only. And I remember it cost so much. That was back in early 2000, maybe, if I'm not mistaken. But for the English world, and of course other Arabic Shia channels were were now coming up post-2003, I think with the post-Saddam period, when, you know, most of the Shias returned to Iraq, you're getting now Shia channels come about on satellite. and But the first English exclusively English, you know, the other ones would maybe broadcast an hour or two of English. But the first exclusive English Shia channel 
on the Sky platform, uh, the very well-known Ahl al-Bayt TV. Uh, and you are part of that instrumental movement to bring about Ahl al-Bayt TV at the start. Before the start of Ahl al-Bayt TV, what was your involvement? Well, before the start of Ahl al-Bayt TV, there were discussions mm. um, that were being had. And the preparation was being made to establish uh, Ahl al-Bayt TV and a base in London in particular. Mm. We had a couple of shabab who were from the Haraka, mm. who were in prime position. Everything's re- revolving around Haraka. Yeah, <laughs> everything does revolve around Haraka. Yeah. <laughs> movement, but that's what yeah. it was. It was a movement. Subhanallah, yeah. We had a couple of the shabab which were very important and instrumental in how Ahl al-Bayt TV would have a base in London. Ahl al-Bayt TV had already been broadcast in Arabic and was doing very well in Arabic. Mm. And um, my lectures actually appeared a lot Mm. when it was Arabic only. And when it came to London... You had Sayyid Amir Hussein and Al-Hajj Amir Taqi, who mm. were really, one may argue, the pillars involved in ensuring that it is set up in London. Mm. Because if you have, for example, the heads of Ahl al-Bayt TV who are not based in London, but London being the center, really, of the English lecturing world. London, when Ahl al-Bayt TV first appeared, had already had English majalis for nine years. And I think the only place where one may argue had equivalent was New York mm-hmm. and Toronto. So they were at Haraka, um, f- key members of Haraka. They had produced a documentary mm. called When Skies Wept Blood. <clears throat> I remember that. Yeah. And on the back of that documentary, building on that documentary, the initiative was now that we should have the channel. You guys have built this documentary. You've worked with a few of us, the speakers, us speakers who were on that documentary. You found that a number of us would be available to lecture. And what better to name a channel than Ahlil Bay TV? Mm. It's a dream come true. Mm. So I was witnessing all of these things happening. And of course, I was going to be fundamental um, in terms of how that channel would emerge, in terms of my availability, in terms of my majalis, and so on. The first live show on Ahl Bay TV was August 2009, if I'm not mistaken, presented by Sister Rebecca Masterton, and you were the guest. Yes. Do you remember that live show? Yes, yes, I remember it. I, I, I remember sort of like small box room in the middle of a warehouse in the middle of absolutely nowhere. But, you know, uh, credit to the likes of uh, Sister Rebecca Masterton for taking time out um, and giving her all. Mm. You know, sometimes we don't give enough credit to the sisters in our community. Here is somebody who's traveling from one place to another to make sure that she can present, that she can teach. You know, she's a scholar in her own right, you know. Mm. Um, it's not just a television presenter. 
Um, and so, yeah, we had that first live show and there was a real buzz. There was a real buzz. I would go around. I remember having a discussion with the former president of World Federation, Dr. Asghar Moladina, where he, you know, he categorically, candidly said to me, you know, shall I donate? How much do we donate? And I told him, donate. You know, this is a TV channel in the name of Ahlul Bayt. We flew to Dubai mm. at the house of Al-Hajj Faris Ali Bay, fundraising for Ahlul Bayt TV. America. Uh, America. Uh, different parts of the UK. We'd go to mm. people's houses and sit with them and tell mm. them and plead, please make sure that you... Uh, give towards the Hillel Bay TV. You know, I was appearing regularly um, on the live show. Uh, the Majalis were always on, you know, and we were working in tandem with each other. You know, I think I think I introduced you to Hillel yeah. Bay TV. Uh, 2010, it was in fact, obviously I'm very good friends with Haji Amir, but I remember there was a buzz about Hillel Bay TV and then I went with yourself. And if you remember the first gala dinner, Yes. In 2010? Yeah, 2010 in a hotel yep. in Wembley. Yes, I yes. The name. Uh, and you gave that important speech and we raised over 200,000 pounds. I still remember it because it was the, my first involvement with this great project. Um, raised quite a big amount of money. The Liverpool t-shirt, which was yeah. which was auctioned, which you're still upset about. No, Why? there's a story to this. The Liverpool t-shirt... Mm. We auctioned. Yeah, we got quite a lot of money. Got quite a lot of money. Yeah. My lovely sister Batul oh, is the one. Oh, I remember one. now. And Batul, what she did yeah, yeah, she gave was that she made sure that she bought it, gave the money, and then gave it back to me. I remember that very well. You know? Yeah. Um, I don't know where it ended up, actually, after that. I think, you know, <laughs> me being me, you know me well. I probably walked out and someone said, can I have it? And I just gave it to them and walked away, you know? SubhanAllah. And, you know... We, you are now the, the poster boy, I can say, if I can use that term, of the of the channel. You're appearing on the channel, as you mentioned, live shows. I remember you you done that famous 2011, if I'm not mistaken, Shahar Ramadan, the first 15 nights, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, the people were just now understanding that or, or knowing that now the Shias in the UK, you know, this group of four or five or six people have started a channel that's on Sky, you know, there was there was a buzz about about it. I'm not, I'm not everyone knew that. And Alhamdulillah, I was honored to be part of that project. And people have asked me this. Sorry, I'm going to put you on the spot. People have asked me this question all the time. We, I, I was there for a long time at Halbay TV, um, 2011. Saying Amaz not on Halbay TV anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I suddenly went into Ghaiba forever. Okay, occultation. Yeah, I but, went into occultation. Yeah. Seriously, Zayd, I know I'm, I'm going to put you on this. But, you know, it's not like you did go into occultation. You weren't in Ghaiba because your lectures are on YouTube. Your lectures are there. As you mentioned, there's not only now Muharram and Shahar Ramadan, but there's the Fatimiyas, you know, as well as the other, other Majalis. But you wasn't on Ahl Bay TV anymore. Yeah, uh, well, first and foremost, I, I served Ahl al-Bayt. Alhamdulillah. Um, Alhamdulillah. So that's a great honor in itself. But I suppose uh, the service to the heads of Ahl al-Bayt TV ended. And that's perfectly fine. Every TV channel has their own uh, worldview. Uh, they have their own uh, perspective on who should be on their channel. Uh, it was a surprise to me, of course, uh, having uh, 
literally gone around everywhere with everybody involved to raise money for this channel. And I don't regret it one bit because mm, the sadaqa jariya continues. I would hope for me that every time somebody watches uh, a program where knowledge is shared, I think I get some of that thawab and uh, every time that there is a uh, a dua that's recited, every time there's a documentary mm. like the ones you did which were fantastic that's produced then uh, you can always look back and say that you were involved in setting this base up I think probably there were differences of opinion mm. in terms of the fact that you know I was uh finishing my PhD in the academic world mm. and therefore studying with certain academics. You know, I, one of one of my greatest honors is that I met the likes of um, you know, Professor Robert Gleave at Exeter. But I think uh, I was told that the likes of uh, Gleave are academics and that we should stay far away from them, which was quite surprising that a couple of years later, there was a, a show, Imam al-Hussein in the Eyes of Non-Muslims, and who was being interviewed the most on that show? That Professor Robert. That was my document. That I, was your uh, documentary. Yeah, I produced that. So all of a sudden, Professor Robert Gleave was okay. Yeah, I think Ahlul Bayt TV, um, the team in London, and this is for the record, They, they all bear witness to this. They all they all saw the hard work. Alhamdulillah, they, it was such a great team. Most of whom are not there anymore, but that team, led by Haji Amir Taqi again, Harak Al Haidariya, yep. our good friend, um, managed to produce great shows, documentaries, the likes of Reborn. And again, I mentioned this for the record. You know, so a lot of people ask me. Alhamdulillah, you know, I always say, you know. I enjoyed my time the most when I was doing Reborn because, you know, there's there's when you're interviewing maybe a scholar or you're interviewing someone who of 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 that status where that you know them, you, the knowledge they give you is very is important. But it's different when you interview someone who's gone through that journey of seeking the truth, and they were, you know, they they inspired me. to stay on the path of the Ahlul Bayt a lot of the times. I loved that show. And I remember people would ask me, you know, you've done all these shows. Why were people converting or reverting? What would you, if you had to pinpoint one reason? Or, I, you know, and I always said, you know, there's two main reasons. I'm not going to say one. The first, and they'd equally the same, but the first I'd mentioned the, the book, Then I Was Guided. It's one of the first English books that I read personally. And a lot of them would mention, you know, I read Then I Was Guided. Yes. And the, I'm talking about the older generation, sure. the younger ones, and this is all on, you know, it's all there on YouTube till to, till today. Alhamdulillah, Al Bay TV has a quite a good uh, social media yes. uh, outlet, like the, the YouTube, the Instagram, and so on. And a lot of the reverts would mention, and the team knows this. They would say, "I converted because I heard a lecture by Sayyid Ammar," and I'll mention this for the record. You know, sometimes it did upset me. I'll say this. You know, this is my perspective that these reverts were saying I converted because of Sayyid Ammar but the channel couldn't have Sayyid Ammar <laughs> we couldn't have Sayyid Ammar so yeah but 
as I mentioned, you know, and as you mentioned, you know, Alhamdulillah, the sadaqa jari, inshallah. Is yeah, you can't lose sleep over these things. No. Um, I th- God gives izzah. And um, do you think that because I wasn't on Ahl al-Bayt TV anymore, or my majalis would never be broadcast, do you think that would stop me Allah. watching Ahl al-Bayt TV? Not at all. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was too kind to me. Mm. He allowed me to reach hundreds of... 100 million views between 2000 so from the last time I was on Ahl Bayt TV from 2011 to about 2017 over 100 million views for lectures mm. God gives Azza to who he wants you know you can try and block God's work but at the end of the day he opened even more and more doors and maybe those were the doors where I was more useful but when I would have Ahl al-Bayt TV, for example, at home, mm. I'd love watching you guys' documentaries. No, you know, I, I, there's nothing going to affect me. You know, I was, I'd be sitting at home watching your documentaries, really enjoying, loving it when there's supplications. Um, of course, for you guys, it was a, a, a difficult position, I'm sure, because here you are, friends of mine. And then you see, you know, you see me all of a sudden being told or you being given orders that no longer can you play yeah. my majalis. Uh, but at the end of the day, that was the wonderful world of the media. There was all of a sudden the move, as we said, YouTube and DVDs and MP3s and all these other forms of media where people could listen to you absolutely everywhere. Uh, so we can't let these petty things of get course. in our way. You know, at the end of the day, we're trying to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, trying to get closer to Ahlul Bayt. Um, and these things aren't going to get in our way I, because if they do, then we have a disease in our in our soul, you know. Um, and that disease should be one that is uh, cured ASAP. But Alhamdulillah for me, I didn't look back because I think probably some of my greatest years of majalis were in the ten years that followed. Alhamdulillah, you know? I, the, 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 that period was a period when I I noticed Alhamdulillah that now the centers were all moving towards perfecting their media outlets, whatever form it was on, um, and I could see you know because I used to be also um, always look out for, for lectures that I can play on, on 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 the channel. Not only the contents I would look out for. Haji uh, Amir, may Allah bless him. He used to always say, you know, the quality has to, the video quality has to be yes, also good. You yes. know, so so there's certain centers I would remember they could invite a speaker that was popular to watch, but you knew because of the quality of the CCTV cameras, you couldn't put it on the channel. Sure. But, but as you mentioned, the Sadaqa Jari, inshallah, is there. I hope it's there for me as well, because even recently, like when I go and watch the channel, I, I would see a show that I produced or, or I worked on, alhamdulillah. And it's an honor that, that I was part of that journey, the Ahl Bay TV, inshallah, they continue to, inshallah. to, to inspire more people. Inshallah. We also have the emergence of other channels coming about yes. now, the likes of... Safir TV, um, the likes of Imam Hussein TV three, because Imam Hussein TV obviously three because there's one in Farsi, um, two in Arabic, and then three the English. Again, like the Ahl Bayt TV channel, it was something that was established um, in Iraq or in Iran with regards to um, Imam Hussein TV, and then the emergence of the English version, and again. Sayyid Amma is there with this channel. 
uh, appearing on the channel. Uh, Alhamdulillah, this month of Ramadan, you're there every night. How do you see Imam Hussein TV and your role there? Well, I have a great relationship with Hajji Qasim Fahad, who I think is one of the most undervalued um, personalities in the Shi'i media industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, me and him, we do joke sometimes because if I definitely was no longer on Ahlul Bayt TV, he certainly has a number of reasons not to keep me on Imam Hussein TV with the amount of headaches that I've given him. Because we've had some really controversial shows on Imam Hussein TV. And I know, I know that there's been moments where he's been sweating. You know, when he's seen me give or have shows on Islam and sex, you know, topics which are seen as so taboo. Um, and you could go and see him afterwards and he'll be like, great show, but what does this word mean? And then I'll be like, oh God, you know what? Let me try and give him a different meaning so that he doesn't uh, get too unhappy. But, you know, he's the head of Imam Hussein TV. He's just fantastic. Great to work with. You've got the lads over here mm. uh, who can can be great to work with. Not all the time, <laughs> but, you know, sometimes they're great to work with. You've got the other lads there, you know, um, Said Murtada and Mustafa and so on. And you've got, you know, the you've got these. They've got a lovely vision for youth. And let's be very frank here. I differ with the head and the head differs with me on certain issues. But the greater goal Mm. was what he looked for. Not an ego or battle of who's going to be more famous, who's getting more spotlight. That's something important. He knows that I differ with him on certain issues. I have certain opinions which may differ with Imam Hussein TV. They have certain opinions that differ with me. Can we both put aside those differences with the greater goal being Ahlul Bayt? With Imam Hussein TV? Fantastic. They didn't let a personal rivalry get in the way or didn't get their hasad get in the way. Rather, it was a case of, you know what, Sayyidina, we may differ on certain things. We can have a cup of tea and laugh over them. Go and do what you do best. And that's what I enjoy with Imam Hussein TV. Because let's not be around the bush. In the Shi'i media world, every channel in the Shi'i media world relates to the marja they follow. Mm. Most of the times when you come on these TV channels, a representative of a marja or someone associated with him will be keeping an eye on every word that you say and whether that is in line with the thinking of the marja who that channel relates to. Mm. All these channels, Imam Hussein TV, Ahlul Bayt TV, Safir TV. You have, for example, back in the day when I used to see Al-Anwar, Al-Zahra, Sahar, Sahar, all of these channels, all of them relate to a particular marja, some blatant, some no. So some blatantly will have, for example, the picture of that marja literally on the top right-hand corner of the screen. Others no. Silently, they'll ensure the channel gets big, and then when it gets big, that's when you put the marja's picture and remove everybody else. To work with someone like Hajji Qasim Fahad where he knew that I differed with him about some of the channel's worldviews, 
and yet there was still space for us to work together, I hope is the future. Mm. I hope that's the future. Because if channels are only going to bring, of course, every channel is entitled to do what they do. Uh, but if they're only going to bring people who are robots for their worldview, or they're going to get let their personal rivalries get in the way and cloud their judgment, then I don't know what the future is for Shiite media. I think we're just going to really end up fading away. Because all it'll then become is a family channel where I bring me, I bring my brothers, I bring my cousins, and we don't bring anyone else. That doesn't no longer become Ahlul Bayt's service. That more becomes how do we maintain our business. And these are things, inshallah, which we have to um, reflect upon. Mm. Because you can't sell a vision to the people and know deep down that that is not what you want. Rather, what you want is to make sure that your vision is the one um, and your family is the one and your ideology is the one that grows. Said with, with, with COVID this year, people turned to, to, to try and get that spiritual feeling that they have in the mosque, but now they're sitting down in front of their computers or yes. in front of their phones or in front of their TVs. It was very difficult, you know. I'm sure you have many people that have come to you and said, you know, it was, you know, we miss the majalis. Um, we miss sitting under the mambar. We miss that feeling. But of course, alhamdulillah, I feel everyone sort of developed into having content for their uh, community through social media. One person who also did this, who I feel was behind everyone else, is yourself. No YouTube channel, no social media. But then we had the YouTube channel last year. Um, what was the, why why the YouTube channel came so late? Why my own laziness, in all honesty. Mm. Um, it, you know, it worked in two ways. You know, I, I was speaking with someone who said to me that, listen, if you had a YouTube channel in 06 until now, mm. you would have hit 10 million, 15 million subscribers. Did you feel at the time, 06, 07, 08, 09, all this time that there was no need for it because your lectures were already no, everywhere? I, no, there I was just, uh, it was just really... Um, because your lectures I, I were everywhere. things with a pinch of salt. Mm. I wasn't too fussed about, you know, who's got my lectures, where they are. Um, there wasn't as intense a scrutiny on everything you say. People weren't taking things out of context. We were all pretty simple and if one may even argue naive at that time because what, what you look at now in 2021 is people literally taking two-minute clips out of your lectures, taking them completely out of context. That's what I was just going to ask you. you know, does it make it more difficult with the rise of this device yeah. that you're speaking and someone takes a phone and then I was speaking there was one speaker who was telling me that internet has mm. damaged him because in the past he could do 10 nights of Muharram somewhere and go somewhere else the next day and repeat exactly the same 10 nights whereas now everything is available some people still do that some people still do that so I I for myself in 06 people will say to me get your make your own YouTube channel Hamad al-Mawla for example in Dearborn would keep telling me Sayyidna open your YouTube channel then when they would be mentioning, come on, put the lectures all in one place. I'm just like, you know, I'm going to a particular mosque and um, let them have the lectures. And then Thaqalain began, mm. which was a wonderful organization of a group of youth in Pakistan mm. uh, who wanted to um, broadcast the lectures. And I think that was the best decision they ever made because mm. God knows how many millions of hits they have because of my majalis. But those boys are excellent. You know, they, they work their socks off. They try their hardest. 
Um, so last year, you know, I just thought, okay, you guys have nagged me enough. Let's uh, let's make the YouTube page. And um, mashallah, I didn't, it's done really well, you know. Um, because uh, I know it's not easy at the moment like it was maybe 10 years ago where everyone was on it. There's a buzz and so on. Um, Instagram in the past for me, people used to have Instagram fan pages for me, which I wouldn't even know about. And then we just thought we'll establish one which is official. So, you know, I'm I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Give me time. You know, don't rush too much. I'm getting to know the tricks of media slowly. Talking of, 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 of people, you know, the other day um, I was listening to a lecture from someone from a different school of thought and they said, you know, the Shia believe in the Mahdi uh, where this is a lie because in Al-Kafi it says that certain companion mentions to someone else that Imam Hassan al-Askari does not have any children. So how? And he says, you know, this is in Kafi Kulain. So I thought, wait a second, if this hadith is in Al-Kafi, let me go and search it. Sure. You know. So I go to Al-Kafi don't remember the, the person that narrates it, but he narrates it from someone called Ja'far. Like Ja'far, Ja'far, Ja'far. Who is this person? Ja'far is Ja'far al-Kadhab. Sure. So Al-Kulaini's mentioned this hadith, and underneath it, he's written that this hadith is narrated by Ja'far al-Kadhab, and the person that's narrated it is Ashaddu Nasban li Ahlil Bayt. He's, he's a Nasib. Sure, he's got agents. Sure. So I thought, now it's so easy for anyone, the had hadith you say, they'll go and check it yeah. easily with, with the internet. That's why I think... It's really important when speakers mention hadith, when they mention certain stories, that no, not only are they are they aware of it, that where the source is, they've actually read it and not just seen it on I don't know an internet page. That that's now a, a problem. You're I think. right. You're right because you know you, you. I remember in the earlier days you could receive this hadith meme. Mm. Or this hadith of Imam Ali alayhi salam, and you literally would just look at it, and you would never think that someone would just fabricate a hadith, and it turned out that that hadith never existed. Uh, so I certainly agree with you that you know we 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 do have to be careful where you you take a hadith from on the internet and then just spread it everywhere on WhatsApp groups. With with the internet and your personal um, social media sites, you've started these clips now. Yes. Um, how did that idea come about and why do you feel it was important that because everyone's used to seeing you on the mumbar on the pulpit delivering a lecture dissecting a topic yes uh in an hour or 55 minutes or however long that each majlis is but now they're seeing you in three minutes four minutes clips the, the rise of of these clips what was that what's the reason behind that well firstly the rationale is people don't have time oh okay and in some cases people are impatient mm. Uh, we were a generation that used to listen to lectures, not even understanding them, and sit there for 45 minutes. Now people within two minutes get bored. And so because of that, we are a, a generation that needs to understand the needs of our generation. The needs of our generation at the moment is get to the point. And some well-wishers who had spoken with me um, had said to me that, look, there are many youth who want clips which answers are given short, concise. As well as clips which I would help, you know, help the youth in their teenage years. Because there are many parents who say that, listen, do you have any lecture on why we pray? Or why alcohol's haram? But I know if you give them a 52-minute lecture, the 16-year-old's not going to necessarily listen to it. Here's two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. Haj Muhsin and Fawzi Jafar have been 
also instrumental in us making clips for non-Muslims. You've been involved in this, of course. Um, and you've seen, alhamdulillah, the effect it's had where you've got people who want to marry a convert and they want to introduce them. Or you've got people who've got sons and daughters who meet non-Muslims and want answers to questions. So these clips have been a, an amazing success because I think we live in a world now where you have to get to the point quickly. Otherwise, they're on those gadgets. Sayyid so, Ahmad, do you, do you follow other social media pages where... Secretly, or, yes, I do. <laughs> where I, 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 the question I want to... The point I want to make is now we've got this this rise of um, social media platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, and, and TikTok... I don't have an account on TikTok. But with, with, the, with the rise of these accounts, we've seen vloggers, influencers, uh, even in our communities, hijabi influencers, Muslim hijabi influencers who have millions of followers, some of them. Um, and then with regards, for example, to someone like a hijabi influencer, uh, I don't know the names, but I remember there was this once this sister that was a hijabi she was an influencer. I don't know how many million followers, and all of a sudden she takes her hijab. What's the? Is there danger first of all of such such uh, rise to of influences? Yes, I don't tend to look at these things negatively. Mm. Um, you know, th those sisters who probably started these types of videos started with sincere intentions, and then people may sometimes face certain struggles with their identity. Um, with their families, even with their worldview. And we have to try and give them benefit of the doubt. You know, if there's a sister out there who was giving lectures, for example, mm. um, she sincerely loves to talk about the religion. And then she went through a period maybe of her own trials and tribulations. You know, don't look at that and slander. Rather try and find a way in which we're able to talk to the sister. Maybe she's reached a conclusion that she doesn't need to do some of these things. Maybe she's found literature where she feels that it differs from what the mainstream is. Um, and yes, there might be people who look at these and uh, are influenced by them. That could happen. Uh, but I always try and say give benefit of the doubt to the people involved in these things. Sayyid, I won't go into a lot of details, but we, there's a sister from, your, from our community. Yes, probably went to the same mosques that we did. Grew up in the same mosque that we did. Uh, probably got now hundred or hundred thousand plus followers on different platforms, social media platforms, and hijabi. And she's, for example, starting a halal dating site. She's giving um, advice on halal dating. She's a halal dating guru. Or isn't there a danger of, of, of such people? You know, people might say, you know, this person is influencing my daughter. My daughter's now going to start going dating guys. And she's talking about muta to them. And she's talking to them about um, sex outside of marriage. This is going to cause a problem for our community. Well, I don't think that sister claims to be an authority in Islamic law. I think she has her own personal space. And that personal space is the media. And on that personal space, she wants to discuss what she's seen in the world and listen to what others think of what she's seen and what others have been through themselves. There's a difference if she claims to be an authority on a subject. Mm. And I don't think many of the sisters who have these types of 
profiles online claim to be the authority. Yes, there might be certain things which they're speaking about which requires a bit more research to know the nuances of the discussion. Secondly, who said that everybody who is in my field is necessarily a good influence? There are people in my field who only do it because they're high school dropouts. There are some in my field who literally don't believe a word that they say when they give lectures. But they're more interested in getting followers, getting subscribers, making it a business. So let's look at both sides. Sometimes people are pointing at the dangers of a sister in our community because they want to slag her off and they, wanna, they find it easy to slag her off. Not knowing what that sister's been through in her life, trials, tribulations, difficulties. And yet when somebody who looks supposedly a lot more religious and speaks with a lot more authority does something wrong, no, no, you can't say anything. We can't say anything. Well, that person is an authority in the subject and is messing up in the way that they behave. And I've seen people in my field. Alhamdulillah, we've seen that, going back to the media side of things, we've seen um, the Shia directors, producers around the world produce some fantastic films. In recent years, we've seen the likes of Nabi Yusuf series, Mukhtar al-Thaqafi Yes uh, One about Imam Ali Sallallahu alayhi And then In recent years We saw that Of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu alayhi wa A beautiful production Again produced in Iran um, And recently In Fatimiya this year You spoke about a film um, And as you mentioned Looks can be deceiving sometimes And sometimes people judge others based on the first thing they see uh, from that person. Sometimes they don't know what's, what's the intention. Definitely they don't. It's difficult to know someone's intention, of course. Um, and you spoke about this film uh, that's supposedly coming out very soon. And some asked, why say that I'm supporting this film made by such and such people that, you know, we know from from what we've seen of them, they're not the best in our eyes representing the madhab of Imam Ja'far al-Sadiq And yet Sayyid Ammar has promoted this film. Yeah, let's separate two issues here. First issue is I cannot deny that the people behind this film carry a lot of baggage. In some cases, carry baggage which in the eyes of many is unhealthy baggage. I'm not talking about their stances necessarily against other schools in Islam. I'm talking about their stances against their own fellow members of the Shi'i community, where they've been openly known to attack and slander some characters in the Shi'a world. Therefore, because of this, and because of the fact that statements have already been made about the characters who directed this film years ago, mm. statements about them being spies and agents and so on, you know, all of us have been accused of this, but in particular with them, and because their rhetoric is seen without a doubt 
in the Shi'i world as being the most extreme rhetoric you'll ever get. If the Shia were always associated with taqiyah, then this was anti-taqiyah. And so, when a person therefore hears that there's a film coming out, The Lady of Heaven, I think, was the title, and regarding Fatima Zahra life, you found that some people straight away rejected the film, of course, without watching it, because of who is behind the film. And that makes perfect sense, by the way. Mm. In the sense that, if you see the rhetoric and the history of those behind the film, you're wondering just how controversial this can be. The second issue is that I was not one who supported the film. Let's make that clear. Mm. I had lectures where I said, we have waited years to have films on the lives of the Ahlul Bayt, alayhimussalam. If this film was made about Fatwa al-Zahra by any other director, would you still have a problem with it? Is the problem the director or the problem is that you don't want to talk about the Shi'i narrative of what took place in the life of Fatwa al-Zahra and her eventual martyrdom? Mm. My narrative, martyrdom. Non-Shi'a, they don't believe in a martyrdom. Why can I not have my narrative portrayed? I was asking a question where a person had to soul search and ask, is the problem the directors or is the problem that you don't even want Fatima al-Zahra last days to be even discussed? There's a difference. Anna. There's a difference. If we don't want Fatima al-Zahra life and death to be discussed, then let's scrap Fatima. Let's scrap Fatimiyah because of the Shia in this world of media and globalization. Think that people don't know what we discuss in our majalis in Fatimiyah. Then wake up and smell the coffee. In our majalis in Fatimiyah, worldwide, we discuss what's in that film. Do we then stop discussing it? Is that the point? We just completely stopped discussing what happened to Fatima Sahra People say, but Imam Ali wanted unity. On the one hand, I can agree with this. In the same way, Harun with Musa did not want the people to be in a state of chaos and disunity. The Harun to Muhammad in the Hadith al-Manzilah wanted the same. We Sincerely don't want a film that's going to cause people in Pakistan, for example, to end up causing bloodshed because of such films. Mm-hmm. I don't mind if, for example, there is a narrative of Fatwa Zahra salam's life that's done that is not the Shi'i narrative. No problem. But why is it that the Shi'i narrative is not allowed to be portrayed? And when someone says to me, Imam Ali salam wanted unity for the Ummah, and therefore how could we make films that caused this unity. His wife certainly didn't look for unity. Fatima al-Zahra caused a clamor over a piece of land, knowing it would cause chaos in the community. Where's her vision of unity? Fadak? Why would you keep speaking out 
you're gonna you're causing trouble. People are having tension because of your outspokenness. People who were your husband's friends don't want to be associated with him any longer. Fatima, where's your vision of unity? Why are you being so sectarian? Fedak, 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 Fedak. Why does no one ever discuss her worldview? Imam Ali wanted unity for the Ummah. How about his wife? His wife wouldn't stop. Okay. You stay silent. Don't reveal it. No, 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 no. That's my land. My dad gave it to me. You've confiscated it. Why can that not be portrayed in a film? Or is it that the Shia are not allowed to have a voice? Certainly, if this was the Middle East, we would never be allowed. But we're in the UK. Why can't a person have... I've not seen the film, and I sincerely hope that it's not a film that seeks to purposely mock or humiliate. But rather, look, these are the narratives that we have. We've made a film on the basis of it. If it does turn out to be a film where the aim is to mock the leaders of other schools and make jokes about them and so on, I'd, I despise such a thing. If, however, it's a film that says that, look, in the Shia narrative, this is what took place with the land of Fedak, at Saqifa, etc., etc. If there was another director, would you accept it? I don't think the problem was only the director. I think there were too many Shia who don't want such things to be out in the public. Now, the Imam Ali salam film that was made, that puts certain famous companions in a bad light. Amr ibn al-Haz doesn't look too good in that film. Mm, definitely not. The wife of the Prophet doesn't look too good in that film. Why did the Maraja block that film when it came out, the Imam Ali film? Because if it's about making sure that Muslims don't have this unity, how comes that film can mock or can show the wife of the Prophet in the Battle of Jamal or Amr ibn al-As and his loyalty to Muawiyah and his behaviors, but there's no problem with that. So if the problem is the director of this film, okay, you got your issues with the director of the film. I certainly have had my differences. Mm. And it's available. People have seen my differences. However, if your issue is the content, then how comes other content was scrapped? I, you see, in, in Shi'i media, double, I see double standards. You cannot show the face of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his time, but show Yusuf and show Zakaria. You cannot show the face of Abel Fadl al-Abbas but there's no problem showing the face of a Prophet. What conclusion are we reaching here? You have to make up your mind as to what your vision is. And I just see double standards more looking at personalities than looking at historical narrative. But that's only my opinion. At the end of the day, if a person wants to watch this film when it's released, watch it. And if you don't want to watch it, then stay away from it. Um, I sincerely hope that there isn't anything that causes us embarrassment. And rather, I hope that it's just something that this is the Shia narrative. Accept it or completely reject it. On two levels there you spoke, I think the first level to non-Shias about the Shia narrative. But you also addressed the Shias themselves who might have had a problem with the film because of the director. They said, you know, this is some a director that has insulted, for example, my marja, or that the team behind it are a team that have insulted my marja or yes. someone that I respect. So there's, there's two levels. There. But 
Talking about the second level, let's concentrate on on, on, on on the people who are the Shia. So the first level we said are those that don't want our narrative, whoever the director is. But those people that have a problem with the director. And we've always wanted a, a film about the Ahlul Bayt, as you have mentioned, with such... I, I prefer not to use this word, but with such disunity within the Shias. What future do we see for Islamic media, and in particular Shia media? I think there's more good than bad. That's for sure. You know, um, come Muharram, everyone forgets their differences. Yeah, but nearly everyone. Um, and uh, come Shahar Ramadan, we're all enjoying. You know, different nights of Ihya, Shahar Ramadan. You know, Laylatul Qadr, and so on. Uh, it's up to us to look at ourselves in the mirror. The media is just a means. The reality is that the most important thing is the person looks at their soul. Why do they want to be on TV? Why do they want to give a lecture? Why do they want to recite a latmiyyah? Is it for their own personal ego and goals to become famous? Is it for their family to be promoted? Or is it true sincere service? I've always said that I wouldn't mind one day walking away from all of this. If my time has come that I can serve in a different capacity, then so be it. Amman Akshawani doesn't have to be at the forefront of everything. If God opens those doors, he opens them. And if not, then I'm very happy to return one day to the periphery. Service can come in different ways, but sincerity is not always there. And I think that's what needs to be reassessed in every person when they suddenly see media in front of them. How does one fight that desire, that ego inside them to, that takes away from the intention, which is the most important thing when you start? As we mentioned in our last podcast, when we said you know, 20 years ago and we sat down, I don't know, me and you, when we were chilling, we didn't think that one day we'd have a Shia, we'd have Shia channels and YouTube channels and me and you will be filming little clips with... God bless Hajj Ali Basri and mm. we're doing all that wasn't the aim it wasn't that oh we're going to travel to this place and that place And the aim was service the intention was service. but when you reach that stage where sometimes you have to fight that when we're all fallible we're not we have to fight that ego inside us how do we do that? well I think firstly um, have good people around you level-headed people around you who you know remind you to take things with a pinch of salt I'm always happy with my friend circle that, you know, um, we have banter between us. There are times that they could uh, make fun of me. I can make fun of them. That keeps you level-headed. I think secondly, to realize that our success is only because of who we're associated to. If we weren't associated to Ahlul Bayt, no one would care about me. Mm. It's only because I'm associated to them that people have some respect for me. If I was not associated to Ahlul Bayt, Majority of people would just look at you just like anyone else. But because somehow I was associated with Ahlul Bayt, I've been given this honor and this privilege. Um, and we're going to die. Uh, bodies are going to decay. There'll be new speakers, new lecturers, new reciters. And uh, those uh, holy 14 will remain the people who everyone literally wants to follow and admire. Sayyidna, always an honor. Pleasure you. to have you on, on the Progeny podcast.